Well, again, good morning and welcome. And for those of you joining us online, we're equally happy that you've chosen uh, to worship with us this morning. Happy Easter. Thank you. I appreciate that. So about 20 years ago, I was driving on this icy road. It was early in the morning. This was back in West Virginia. If you can't tell by the accent, I've got a touch of hillbilly going on there. So this was back in West Virginia, still dark out, and there'd been some freezing rain. I didn't even know it was there, as a matter of fact. So I was going around a turn, went too fast, went out of control, and flipped the car over. And I was hanging there upside down. Fortunately, I wasn't hurt. And somebody came, and we, we got everything fixed. But the next time I got into a car, my shoulders got tight. As a matter of fact, they got so tight, it felt like my shoulder, they could almost touch each other in the back. I got this banging headache. And as it turns out, there is this thing called car crash anxiety. So even though the event was completely over, even though I wasn't physically harmed in it, there was this leftover lingering effect of what it was that had happened already. And maybe you've experienced that. You've been in a car crash, and the next time you get in the car, you feel the pain and the anxiety, and you get that banging headache. But, you know, there's other crashes that can happen in life that can mirror the same impact of that car crash anxiety. Maybe something has happened, uh, and maybe it was by your own hand. And what I mean by that is, in the past, you did something something that you immediately regretted, and, but it happened anyway. It could have been a harsh word to somebody that you love. It could have been a relationship that you knew shouldn't have been. And even though that event is over, it's gone, it's in the past, you're still feeling those lingering effects of it. And I'm sure that many of us here this morning can relate to that in one way or another, something feels like it's still haunting us that happened in the past. And what I want to talk about this morning is how do we recover from regrets? How do we recover from regrets? The resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has a bearing on how we overcome what has happened to us in the past. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 40, 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. And you can probably guess the story that we're going to read about this morning. And if you would, please stand with me as we read about the resurrection and that resurrection morning of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Starting with Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. 
When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. So in the passage that I just read, you heard the characters who were involved in this first Easter morning. You heard about some women. You heard about a man named Joseph. And then finally Christ himself. And what's just as important is who's not there. The disciples of Jesus Christ, those who he had spent the most time with, those who had walked with him all this way, are noticeably absent from the story. So this morning we're going to look at these different characters. And we're going to talk about the disciples along the way. We'll see these women who faithfully remained with Jesus the whole time, We'll see Joseph, the character who fearlessly, against everyone around him, took courage. He was searching for the kingdom of God, like the text says, and he requested the body. Then we'll see that Jesus freely restores everyone. And then I want to talk very, uh, very concretely, applicationally, about well, how then do we recover from our regrets, looking at this passage and talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, we have these women, and the disciples, again, seem to be completely removed from the story. And that's an important point. Even though Jesus told them several times exactly what was going to be happening, he said, look, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'll be resurrected. I'm going to die, then three days later, I'll be resurrected. Still, they don't know where they should be right now. They're just... They're just gone. In other places, it said they fell asleep when he told them to pray. One of the disciples nearest and dearest to him, who said, I'll never let you be crucified at this point again, is absent, the apostle Peter. He was the rock. He even lied about Christ after he was arrested. So they're out of the picture. But then we come to these ladies in the story. And one of the first things you may notice is in that verse 40, it says they were watching. So they were watching from a distance. Why was that? See, Mark included that for a reason. He intended the readers to see that the disciples were gone. And the question will come, well, are the ladies going to do the same thing? They're watching. They're kind of hanging back. They're on the fringes. Are they going to stick around? And what we find is, they are not going to fail like the men did. As a matter of fact, when we get in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16, 
It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene married the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So on this Sunday, it was the ladies who were going to go, and they were going to care for the body of Christ. Now again, Christ had told the disciples, look, I'm going to walk out of that tomb. I'm going to be raised to life on the third day. And yet at times I've asked myself, well, where would I be? Would I be there? Would I be off somewhere else? They should have been camped out. They should have been ready to see this event as it was going to happen. And then if we go down to verse 3, we see that Mark is going to take another jab at the absent men. Then in verses 3 and 4, we see, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away this stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These are the ladies talking. And again, this is another pointer to the men's absence. So we see here these ladies, they've got this, they've got this example that they're giving us of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Much more so than the men are. And I think these disciples have may have been asking themselves, Well, is this all for real? I mean, this man we've been following, we'd seen the miracles he'd done, we thought we had him figured out, but now he's dead, and he's gone. So what are we going to do? But they forgot the truth that Christ had repeatedly told them. And times of despair will often do that. I know in my own life, when Times get bad. It's the times I'm most likely to despair. And it's in those times when I despair, I'm most likely to forget truth about God, that he is sovereign, that he is in charge, that challenging times are going to come to us, sometimes by our own hand. And we forget that he's a lovingly merciful God, ready to forgive, ready to accept, always true to his word. And he told us, he said, you will have trouble in this life. So often I forget that. See, we're living in a world that's fallen and it's broken and bad things are going to happen. We see them happening in the news every night. But see, God's still in charge. But I fail to believe that. So we have the faithfulness of these women in the story, staying with Christ. Then we move to this second character, that we're introduced to, starting in verse 43. It's a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And we see that he fearlessly requests the body of Christ. And we see it there in verse 43. Uh, he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And what did he do? It says he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So we learned some things about him in this, in this passage. He was a respected member of the council. It's talking about this thing called the Sanhedrin, made up of 71 Jewish leaders, of which he was one. It was an esteemed position to have. These are the people that everyone in the community would have looked up to, the ones that were there to give them answers, the ones that were there to take charge when things seemed to be going bad. These were his peers, the colleagues. These are the ones he would have been raised up with from a, from a young child. And he was a respected member, but it says he was looking for something. He was looking 
for the kingdom of God. And what does he do? Well, he takes courage. It doesn't say he wasn't afraid. As a matter of fact, if he wasn't afraid, he wouldn't have had to have taken courage. I think the great theologian, John Wayne, <laughs> had one of the best things to say about courage. He said, it doesn't mean that you're not afraid. He said, courage is when you're scared to death and you saddle up anyway. Because in what Joseph did, he risked losing his seat on the council. He risked losing the respect of his fellow council members, becoming ceremonially unclean for coming in contact with a dead body. And he could have been denied the request because he went to Pilate himself. Remember, at this time where the Jews lived, Israel was under Roman occupation. Pilate was a representative of the empire of Rome there. He had the soldiers to make things happen that he wanted to make happen. He could have said no. He could have been denied by Pilate himself, or worse, he could have had his life taken. It was custom in Rome to let a body hang on a cross, especially if it was for treason. It took tremendous courage. And again, where are the disciples? They're just gone. Mark's including this. He's pointing a finger at these scared disciples, their, their lack of courage in comparison to someone who this would have been very sort of out of character for, this member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph Arimathea, who dared to approach to get the body of someone who'd been sentenced to death. But see, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Another fail by the disciples. Not only do we find them faithless compared to these women, we find them fearful compared to the fearlessness of Joseph of Arimathea. I deeply admire the courage that Joseph had to stand up to his peers because, see, being fearful is something we all encounter. It's part of the human experience. We have tremendous pressure facing us. As Christians, we have tremendous pressures from the culture facing us. We have the normal fears, like, well, I'll make it financially. How's my marriage going to do? Then we have the other fears of being in a culture that seems increasingly less willing to put up with the beliefs of Christianity. That we can have faith in our fears. You may ask, will I be ostracized for my faith? Will I be persecuted by coworkers? You see, we're very susceptible to peer pressure. It's an interesting phenomenon that happens. As a matter of fact, Market researchers know the power of peer pressure. They know the power that it has over us. As a matter of fact, I just read about this study some researchers did on peer pressure. They just had a bunch of people go into a room, and their job was simply to walk around aimlessly. They trained a few people, though, to walk in a particular direction, just two or three out of about 100. And before long, 95% of people in that room were following those other people without even knowing it. As a matter of fact, one of the researchers, they summed up their conclusions this way. The research suggests that humans flock like sheep and birds subconsciously following a minority of individuals, and it takes a mere 5% of informed individuals to influence the direction of a crowd of up to 200 people. 
the other 95% trail along without even being aware of it. See, we're being influenced. We're being pressured by peers when we don't even know it. This man, Joseph, had to show tremendous courage to do what it was that he did. And again, where were the disciples? We see him fearlessly requesting the body of Christ. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. The best part of the story actually comes next. And I've pointed out these failures of these disciples, their absence from all that's going on right now, the need for these other folks that are coming in. It seems like they're picking up the slack where the disciples should have been there. But now we come to see Christ himself. And we see that he freely restores. Thank God. Christ freely restores those of us who fail. See, the women in the story, they approach the tomb. They found the tomb of Jesus. The stone has been rolled away. They look inside. They find a young man just sitting there, which would have no doubt been, been terrifying to anyone. And then he speaks to them. Verses 6 and 7. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and listen. What do they have to do? Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Hope is kindled. Though the disciples, they failed miserably, even though they were absent, and through their absence, they've shown weakness in faith and weakness in fear. And even though it was like the predictions Jesus had made about his own death and resurrection had just gone right in one ear and, and right out the other, he has not forgotten them. He'll go and meet them in Galilee. That's where they started their journey to Jerusalem. You see, there's the good news. And I love the way uh, one commentator has stated it. In the command of the young man to the women at the empty tomb is a reminder to us that failure is not a dead end. There would be forgiveness. There would be restoration. There is hope for those who have failed in their discipleship. Those who have shamefully abandoned Jesus and equally disgracefully denied him are now being offered the hope of restoration. So see, Chad Cowan messes up. He messes up a lot. He veers off the road. He crashes physically. And in many other ways, I've succumbed to peer pressure. I've laughed at jokes that I probably shouldn't have. I've done exactly what these disciples have, and yet, by the grace of God, praise Him. There's hope for us failures. You see, the only real unforgivable mistake that any human being can ever make is not to get on the road with Jesus to begin with. For those of you who are here this morning, maybe, frankly, you're a little unsure about where you stand with God. You're unsure that if, for whatever reason, if your life was taken today, you're not sure where you might spend eternity. I want to invite you right now, I want to speak to you about how to take that first step with Jesus Christ. I want to show you a few verses. 
See, we're all in need of a Savior. We see it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, as one person said, all means all, and that's all all means. We all fall short. If we lined up in front of the church and we were all trying to throw a baseball over the Bighorn Mountains, we would all come hilariously short. Some of you would throw a little further, but we'd all fall short. In the same way, we all fall short of God's standard of perfection and goodness. We're all sinners. We've all displeased God. It goes on to say in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. This is what we have earned by our sinfulness. This is a death that goes on beyond just physical death. It speaks of a spiritual death. It's a death that means an eternal separation from God. You see, this is what our sin has earned us. We're all born with this condition called sin. It's, it's like a cancer. It's a cancer that's in our bodies. It's a condition we have. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end here because we come to another verse in Romans. It talks about how do we rid ourselves of this cancer that's in all of us that we're born with. It says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus did for you and I what we could never have done for ourselves. If all of us were guilty, who then would pay for the sins that were committed? Only one who was perfect. Christ himself had to become human, come to earth, live the life of a human. Fully God, fully man. Only perfection could have paid for the price of sin amongst us all. Jesus took that cancer called sin, he took it out, and he put it in himself. And he paid the price, and he provided the cure to the cancer. That's what he did for us. You can make a decision right now to have all your sins forgiven. You can share in the hope of heaven. So when the day comes that you leave this earth, you can spend eternity with Christ. So how do we respond to that? One more verse, two more. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. It doesn't matter what your car wreck looked like. It doesn't matter about the crash you've had. It doesn't matter what sin you may have committed. If you simply believe today that Christ who was and is fully God, died for your sins. And God the Father raised him from the dead. You can join in this eternal hope. It's a gift that is extended. You can't earn it. We accept it simply by believing that Jesus is who he says he was and he did what he said he did. You accept it by faith. In the same way you came in and you sat down in that chair I doubt any of you inspected that chair. You believed it was going to hold you up. That was a step of faith. Every day you go out into a world and you don't know how things are going to go. Would you get out of bed? That's a step of faith. Trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ is a step of faith. And right now you can in faith acknowledge you're a sinner and by faith put your trust in the saving work that Jesus Christ did for you. It's like, it's like taking a gift. If you watch a child at Christmas... They don't 
become embarrassed when someone gives them a gift. They don't look around to find a gift they need to give you. They just take it. And that's the way this gift is being extended to you right now here on the morning of April 4th, 2021 on Easter Sunday. I'd actually like to ask for just a brief moment, if everybody would just bow their heads and close their eyes. If everybody, would you please just uh, take a moment, bow your head and close your eyes. If you're ready to take that next step and trust Christ as your Savior, I want to lead you just in a simple prayer right now. It's, it's the act of believing that saves you, but there's a prayer, I believe, that would reflect that faith. And you can make your faith known to God right now, simply right there where you're sitting. You can pray silently to the Lord. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus died for me and was raised from the dead. And I am trusting in his work to save me from my sin. Thank you, Jesus. And amen. And with, still with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you said that prayer, would you just please just slip your hand up in the air? Would you mind doing that? Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. One more. You know, it could be that you're back to church this morning, and maybe it's been a while. It happens. I was there. And you've come back to church after a while, and you, this morning can be the first day of many more Sundays to come. We would love to see you plugged in here at First Baptist or in another Bible-believing church here in Sheridan. I would ask that you would consider right now making that commitment to the Lord. God, I, I want to be part of a believing body that follows you so I can get that encouragement I need and I can be an encouragement to others and I can use the gifts that you've given me. I would ask that if this is your first Sunday back in a while, and I've, again, I've been there, that you would consider making that commitment to be part of either First Baptist or another Bible-believing church uh, here in this town or maybe the one if you're here visiting from somewhere else. And Father, we thank you for your love and for your forgiveness. Amen. So then, I want to talk a little bit more about the role that Christ has played in restoration. And I want to talk about four steps, about getting back on the road with Christ. You've crashed, you've wrecked like we all did. And we see the role that, that Christ has played. And, and since we all fail, these are just four steps that actually two ladies came up with these who both found themselves as young single moms. They're both at a staff on, um, they're both on a staff at churches now. But they found themselves in a rough spot. And first of all, we need to accept God's forgiveness. Accept God's forgiveness. If you have turned from your sin in honest confession, it cannot wreck you. See, we all sin. And we continually confess our sins. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Paul says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That means to put in right standing in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6. So accept that forgiveness, and then you are forgiven. And he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12. And then secondly, endure the consequences. You do have to endure consequences 
Um, forgiven still, still has the consequences, and some are more serious than others. Most everything we do has some impact on someone else. And by the power of God, you can find his forgiveness, and you can endure it. You can live by the love and grace of God in such a way that, that guilt and shame does not need overcome you. You can only control your own actions. You can apologize. You can reach out. The ball may be in somebody else's court to forgive you. And then third, fight against accusation. Fight against accusation. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. We accuse ourselves. But Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That means God is no longer condemning you. Don't condemn yourself. Don't hang yourself. God is not trying to impose guilt upon you. He's forgiven you. Fight against that. I've, I've done and said things that, yes, they can haunt me sometimes. But I have to remind myself if I'm facing despair. You know what? Jesus paid for that. When he died on the cross, it was to pay for that sin. He doesn't expect me to spend the rest of my life paying for it. And he doesn't expect you to either. So fight against those accusations. And then recommit yourself. Recommit yourself. You can't change the past. But you can commit to doing better. Part of repenting is turning from whatever sin you've committed and, and then having the desire not to repeat the sin. But if we do, we humble ourselves and we come to God and He forgives us. We ask for help in resisting temptation. And he will be honored by both your purity and your acceptance of his grace. So putting this all together, very simply, get back on the road faithfully and fearlessly. Either get back on the road, maybe you've fallen off, or for the first time, thank God for those of you who put your faith in Christ this morning. In closing, I want to tell you about a group that was founded in 2015. And man, I think we might need a local chapter of this group. It's called the Quitters Club. It was founded by a guy named Justin Cannon. And their tag, tagline is, let's give up on our dreams together. Now, what, what's going on here? So this, this invitation was in Washington, D.C. It was extended to a bunch of people. It's kind of a joke. And the invitation to the group read, most of us, have something special we'd like to do with our lives. At the Quitters Club, we can help each other stomp out the brush fires set in our hearts and get on with our lives, says the founder of the group. And he said, the, the founder said he'd given up all sorts of things, he admitted. And he's tortured by what he calls these dueling forces of grand ambition and yet intense self-doubt. And he said most often the battle leaves him frozen. So that's why he took action. He posted a note on Meetup for this new group, and he thought he might be forming a club of one, but 35 people showed up at this new club in 48 hours. And they all, the members all expressed their broken dreams and their inability to make progress, but then surprisingly, they ended up encouraging each other to persevere. There was an actress. They said, you should give it a hard push for a year before tossing out your ambitions of making on stage. There was another unhappy person 
Uh, they told him they should look for a new job before giving up on Washington, D.C. There was a writer whose day job is getting in the way of her artistic pursuits, and they said, you need to carve out time to be an artist. Now, why, why am I sharing all this? See, there's a new tagline. It says, here we are at the Quitters Club, and we're all encouraging each other to keep going. <laughs> See, I think that's a great tagline for a church. As a matter of fact, I think the Quitters Club may be a good name for a church. <laughs> because the church should be a place where the body encourages one another in the faith, especially in times of deep discouragement and failures. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you that we can celebrate this Easter Sunday. And I'm so thankful for those people here today who put their faith in you for the first time. And God, I pray that they would see this as their first step in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning, only the beginning of the adventure that lies ahead. Lord, I pray that we would all encourage each other. God, we all feel like quitters. We all screw up. We all wonder, God, are you really going to let me come back? And you always do. We have the hope of the resurrection in front of us, no matter how rotten things may get. We live with the hope that someday we will be there with you, Lord Jesus, in a resurrected body, just like the one that you have. God, I thank you for each and every person here today. I pray that you would bless us all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.